from the host that brought you to Coding Westworld. And Westworld the Recapables. Comes the Ringer Prestige TV podcast uh, on Westworld. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm Danny Heifetz. And I'm David Shoemaker. Welcome to Westworld Season 4 and the Prestige TV podcast feed, where we're going to break down every episode of Westworld Season 4. Every Monday, the day after the show comes out on the Prestige TV podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, but get them on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, it is Thursday, June 23rd. When I was coming up in media many years ago now, there was a trade magazine called Amusement Business. It had existed for more than 100 years. It covered the theme park and carnival businesses. We used to joke when we would see it that it was like the Wall Street Journal for carnies. Sadly, Amusement Business is no longer, was eaten by the internet, and I think the actual theme park industry sort of outgrew it. But the business of parks has never been bigger. The pandemic was obviously catastrophic. A lot of these businesses that generated billions of dollars all of a sudden went to zero. But now it has gradually come back, and it's a boom time for theme parks, especially for the Walt Disney Company. The global theme park business was $42 billion in 2021. It's expected to grow to $70 billion this year, then double by 2026. That is a remarkable comeback from a business that a lot of people thought might never be the same when the pandemic hit. Last quarter, Disney parks generated $6.6 billion, double the previous year's second quarter. It's just a phenomenal time to be in the theme park business. So I thought, given everything that's going on, we would have someone in here who knows it better than anyone, Carly Weissel, who is a theme park journalist and has a podcast called Very Amusing that goes over all of this stuff. Today, we're going to be talking to Carly about Disney, about all the others, Universal, what's new, how they're making all this money, and the future of this very important element of the entertainment business. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Carly Weissel. She is a theme park journalist, which is one of my favorite titles of all time. I wanted to get you in here because we keep seeing these headlines about how well the theme park industry is doing post-pandemic or as we come out of the pandemic. But Disney in particular is going completely nuts. Why is Disney making so much effing money on theme parks? Uh, You're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people are seeing this top line story that Disney parks and resorts are killing it, but there's really not much of an understanding on the lower level of how they're reaching these numbers. Now, as we know, demand is off the charts due to pandemic-related closures. There is so much demand from people who wanted to go on trips and for so long could not. Prices are higher across the board. Yeah, that's the key, because 
we knew everybody wanted to go on vacation. Travel everywhere is going nuts. But Disney is benefiting more than others. Well, prices being increased is only part of the story because things are up for food, admission, souvenirs, even parking across the board. But raising parking prices a few bucks isn't going to move the needle the way that we've seen with the Q1 and Q2 numbers. I think the biggest factor to this, because Disney World and Disneyland, guests going to Disney World and Disneyland are spending 40% more than they did before the pandemic. And that's not just because there are better lightsabers to buy. It all revolves around this thing called Genie Plus. Now, Genie Plus was introduced in 2021 at Disney World and Disneyland, and it serves as a replacement for their skip the line Fast Pass benefit. Now, if you're familiar with Fast Pass, if you've been to either theme park resort, both do work similarly in that they provide scheduled access to expedition guided queues for popular rides and select other attractions. And it, this Genie Plus product costs $20 per person per day in California and $15 per person per day in Disney World. But what's really interesting here, and which is why these numbers are so sky high, is because with Genie Plus, Disney is essentially charging a premium and sometimes a double premium, which I'll get into, for a product that was previously free to everyone. FastPass was included with every single admission ticket to either Disney World or Disneyland, and now it comes at a higher rate, and that is why we're seeing so much spending. What's really interesting about Genie Plus is that it's working pretty well at Disneyland Resort, but at Walt Disney World, it's not really going well. They previously had FastPass, which... If you were staying on property, if you're staying at a Disney hotel, you got to book it 60 days out instead of the standard 30. But now everyone, regardless of where you're staying, if you are using Genie Plus, you have to wake up at 7 a.m. each day to book your first ride return time. And Disney, a few months ago, they updated the language on the website. So now if you wake up early, you are probably going to get two to three return times, which is essentially less than they were offering before with FastPass, with the free product. So the paid product with Genie Plus is kind of not working as well as the free one on the guest-facing end. And, and this was something that the previous CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, really resisted. I mean, I've said this on the podcast before, but his vision of the, of the parks was it was supposed to be for the middle class. You were supposed to be able to go and have the same experience as everyone if you went. Now, the downside of that is that the lines were super long and people had a not ideal experience at the parks. Now, essentially, you're seeing options. If you want to pay more, you can pay 80 bucks for a family of four to get these genie passes. And then you can pay an additional fee to skip the lines at all these different rides. Now, for a certain price point of customer, that's great news. Because if you're going to go to Disney and you know you're going to pay through the nose, you might as well just pay a little bit more or a lot more and have a better experience. But for the average person that goes to Disney, what you used to get is not what you get now. Well, it's really interesting especially economically, because if you look at it, by the time you're at the park, your ticket is essentially a sunk cost. So you're out here being uh, being tempted with spending about 10 to 12% of what your ticket price would be to be able to have a better day in the park. And it's right at that price point where it's very compelling and it's something that people want. Now, there is a second portion to Genie Plus, which is called Individual Lightning Lane. There are these pay-per-ride attractions that are not included in the selection of Genie Plus attractions that are basically Disneyland and Disney World's most popular rides. So if you want to go on something like Rise of the Resistance and you don't want to wait, that's not available through Genie Plus. You have to buy a separate entry time through Individual Lightning Lane. So you have 
not just a paid cost for FastPass, which is previously free, you also have another layer of that on top. So sometimes people who used to never pay to skip the line with FastPass are paying two or three times to be able to access more attractions during their park stay. And I think in a utopia, yes, this would be a place for everyone. But the Walt Disney Company has changed so much that I don't really fault them for that. I mean, the way that the parks are now, you're going there and you're seeing these tentpole franchises in park. You're going to an entire Star Wars themed land. You're seeing Marvel attractions on both coasts now. And I think that the pay structure has to reflect that, especially with the demand being so high. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to put it, but it's so high. And it's, I mean, you could easily go to the gouging criticism where they know that the demand from kids is going to be there, and they're essentially just squeezing the real estate as much as they can squeeze. And at what point do you ultimately damage the Disney brand by making it out of reach or so expensive that your ultimate customer is either not going to do it or is going to have a bad experience when they do do it? Right. And we are really riding a line. Like for years, Disney has been getting closer and closer to this point where their most dedicated fan base is going to be reaching a breaking point. And I personally don't think we are there yet, but I think we are on the path towards it, especially coming off these Q1 and Q2 numbers. Disney's going to want to keep those numbers up. And I'm uh, uh, I'm a little nervous about what they're going to do to squeeze theme parks fan theme park fans going forward because right now spending, you know, anywhere between 15 and maybe $30 to skip the line per person, that's not the difference between going on vacation or not, but whatever they might introduce in the next year, two years, three years to keep those numbers up, that could really push people over the limit. So what might they do? You have to pay to get a photo with certain characters? Well, that is already an option. <laughs> it's, I personally don't know. I know they are reinventing the annual pass program yet again at Disneyland Resort. They reintroduced Magic Key when the parks reopened. Uh, it was a new version of their annual pass program. It has not really gone well, which I think is the nicest way to say that. How, um, how so? Because essentially Disneyland is a park where their locals make up a large chunk of their audience. And with this park reservation calendar, which we haven't discussed yet, but now if you visit Walt Disney World or Disneyland, you have to select your date in advance. You have to make a reservation to go there. And that is pretty antithetical to the way that Disneyland locals like to visit the park. So now their annual pass system, which currently none of the tiers are for sale, it is all basically paused until a new product is going to be reintroduced this later this summer, uh, or further details on what is coming is coming later this summer. Now you have to plan in advance. And with an annual pass, you only get a certain amount of reservations you can make. So it was much more limited than it was in the past. So I, I don't know what comes next. I'm a little scared. <laughs> but uh, so far, things have been, people have been frustrated by the fact that you have to pay for rides. But personally, I do believe that a tiered experience is the best thing going forward because it allows for people who want a once of a lifetime trip to spend an extra $400,000, $600,000 to guarantee access to certain things. And right now, the strata is really, you go to the park or you use this paid product, which is a per person per day fee, or you book a VIP tour, which is basically it's about seven hours minimum and the rates start 
I think you end up spending probably around average $750 per hour. So there's really nothing in between. And I assume that's what they're looking at in terms of how to keep revenue up. What can you do between the level of Genie Plus and individual Lightning Lane and these high-priced VIP tours? But I don't know what sits in that spot. I've done a VIP tour. It is quite nice. Yeah, it's exceptional. (laughs) Fun fact, my tour guide, I asked, of course, who the most ridiculous diva worst celebrity was that they've given a tour to guess who it was i'm i am too smart to guess on mike (laughs) i'll tell you it was mariah carey (laughs) well at least she earns it you know it's mariah carey she's a legend he told an amazing story about her asking him to get him get her and the family churros and you know the, the tour guides at disneyland are very particular. This is not their job. They're not servers. They are tour guides. And he said, all right, whatever. I'll go. I'll get you, Mariah Carey, a churro. So he went and got her a churro, brought it back. And she looked at him and she said, this isn't warm enough. (laughs) All-time diva behavior. I mean, well, I'd be lying if I haven't been there before because I do have a vendetta against a certain pretzel with cheese because the cheese isn't hot enough. So I get it. I get her struggles. So I get emails occasionally from Disney park goers because I write at Puck, I write about Disney a lot. And I've picked up a lot of anger from the Disney fan base at the CEO, Bob Chapek. Is it just because of these efforts to extract more money? Or is there something else going on there with the leadership at Disney? So it's really interesting because I, you know, I subscribe to Puck. I love it. I love your newsletter. And I really get such a different perspective on Chapek from the Hollywood end of it. Because on the parks end of it, I will say that, you know, the Florida of it aside, just in general, theme park and theme park fans complaining, it all goes directly to Chapek. And it's something that I've noticed in the past year that none of this falls on Josh Tomorrow, who runs the Disney Parks and Resorts end of the company. This is the guy who is in charge of Disney Parks, and yet none of the fan feedback seems to touch him. He seems impervious to any of these complaints. Everyone just blames Chapek, who is at the top, and I understand that. But this other executive, Josh Tomorrow, he really is in charge of the things that people are struggling with, like Genie Plus, like annual passes on both coasts, things like that. And for some reason, he's just fully impervious to it. People are kind of fans of him in the way that they are not of a of a different corporate executive. And I'm not out here to like fully defend uh, a corporation's CEO ever, but it is interesting to me that Chapek is automatically blamed for low-level things happening at the park that I, I personally don't think he needs to be blamed for. Well, he did come from parks. That was where he, he, and consumer products. Yes, of course. And I think the mentality overall does stem back to him. But it is interesting that truly, I, I don't think I have ever seen a single critique of Genie Plus, of Genie Plus hasn't been working very well at Disney World, of changes to Disney hotels. They stripped out a lot of benefits that you get by staying on site. There's no longer bus transportation to and from the airport, things like that. Things that are really pain points for regular Disney fans or regular Disney Parks fans. No one is bringing those to Josh. They all kind of settle within the Chapek universe. Hmm, Fascinating. So, You are one of the journalists who went to the opening of the Star Wars Immersive Experience Hotel in Florida. Yes, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Yes, which uh, piqued my interest. I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, 
but what is the cost of this thing? Now, this this makes sense. I totally get Disney having a tiered experience system where the parks cost one thing and then you have the cruises cost another and then there's a fancier resort in Hawaii for people that want to spend a little bit more. This Star Wars attraction seems to be the apex, or is it? If you are a Star Wars fan and you are not considering going to Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, I think you've made a mistake because this was an experience that was built specifically for you. And it's really interesting because it's maybe one of the only things Disney has done at a very, very high price tier that only caters to specific Disney Parks fans. And I I found it to be... Only Star Wars fans are going to be into this. But like, what do you do? Like, what makes it so good and how much is it? So the pricing varies depending on how many people you're going with, if it's just two occupants per cabin or four. But the prices start around $5,000 and go up closer to six. And what you're really doing is you have a two-night immersive experience on a, on a spacecraft, on a ship where you are in the Star Wars universe. And a story progresses over the two evenings. Everything is completely housed within this structure, except for when you do visit Disney's Hollywood Studios to go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And it is... It is the most immersed you can get into a Star Wars story ever because the way it was built was that you are living out your own narrative, your own journey within this universe. The choices that you make on on the ship on day one affect what happens to you before you leave. So there really is a theatrical element to it. It's immersive entertainment. It's unlike anything Disney has ever really done, which is why I think a lot of Disney fans are intrigued in general, just to see what this very secretive experience is like. But I walked away feeling that they did a really good job and it was it's really something special and something different that we haven't seen from them before. I don't know. If a stormtrooper comes up to me and starts talking shit to me, I kind of want to just punch him in the face. Like, that kind of immersiveness... It's not for everyone. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's definitely not for everyone. Um, when, when I came back, the two questions I kept getting were... Would you pay your own money to do it? Because I went for work, so it was I didn't pay out of pocket for a regular booking. And was it worth it? And I think it really comes down to, is it worth it for you? Is it worth it for you? If this is something that seems exciting to you to eat space food, to have your waiter explain what sodas they have in terms of like off-planet beverages, things like that, I think that for a certain audience, it's really exceptional. And it is, I have broken down the price on my podcast, Very Amusing, and the price does kind of fit the experience. People get sticker shock with it. They think it's way too expensive. There is this never-ending narrative of, oh, they're not booking enough. The rooms are empty. This hotel is just completely going to fail, which is not true. (laughs) Uh, It's just simply not true. I think going forward, they will have to do more to expand this to guests who may not be willing to pay this amount of money for this experience. But you really, it's kind of like having a Star Wars-themed vacation with VIP tour elements over the course of two nights. And so depending on who you are, it is either something you do not want to spend money on and it's not worth it, or it's something that you'll really enjoy. I'm going to make my kid wash a lot of cars to get the money to go to that. He'll be washing every weekend from now until his his 12th birthday (laughs) to go to that. Uh, Sounds outrageous. All right, let's talk a little bit about some of the other places because I know you you cover theme parks across the board. Um, You know, Universal, to me, is one of the more interesting ones because they've really ridden out the Harry Potter fad, not fad, the Harry Potter franchise that I think with some of the Fantastic Beasts movies not doing as well, we're probably going to, we're probably on the tail end of that. Um, Do you think that's accurate? And what is Universal doing 
to kind of keep up. I know they're never going to be Disney, but they would like to be on the same, you know, in the same conversation. Oh, they are absolutely wanting to be in the same conversation. And in some respects, especially in Florida, I really do think they are. I mean, not in the terms of the don't say gay conversation because Comcast hasn't said a single word. <laughs> yeah, they are definitely not at Disney's level when it comes to that, but uh, they've stayed completely silent. But in terms of attractions, they're really, we're starting to get back into like the theme park wars of it all. I mean, last year, uh, Universal Orlando Resort introduced Velocicoaster, which is a Jurassic World themed coaster. And it it is unbelievable. It is an unbelievable roller coaster. And then this year, Disney responded with Epcot's Guardian of the Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, which is also an unbelievable roller coaster. So things are really heating up in terms of who will have the next great thing. And in Orlando, they are going to be opening Epic Universe, which is an entirely new theme park. Disney World has not announced a new theme park. Disneyland has not announced a new theme park. This is huge for Universal Orlando. And it's going to have allegedly, I will head allegedly different lands, one of which is allegedly supposed to be themed to the Fantastic Beasts Harry Potter universe. So it would be a new section of Harry Potter stuff. But you so they're doubling like- down on Harry Potter, even though the movies haven't been doing that well. Allegedly. Again, uh, I, I don't like to report off of and as, as real as they look, blueprints, rumors, aerial shots, whatever. Um, I wait until the announcements come. But still, I think that using the Nintendo franchise is really going to be their way to boost an immersive land that they have and kind of counteract any sort of fatigue with the Harry Potter franchise. Because they are opening Super Nintendo World at Universal Studios Hollywood spring 2023. That's very, very soon. And Universal Studios Hollywood isn't really the apex of theme park conversation, to say the least. It's a teeny tiny park. It is really a one-day park. There's not that much new happening there most of the time. But they are going to be So far, the first chance that Americans really have to experience this Nintendo-themed world because it opened in Universal Studios Japan in Osaka over the pandemic. And as you know, we can't easily get to Japan right now. It's Unless you're on a tour group, you literally can't go. So this is our first shot at it, and I think it's really going to give Universal Hollywood, and then when it eventually opens in Orlando, a boost so that we can finally visit this new Nintendo-themed land in person. Universal has the Mario Brothers movie coming out right around then as well. It's probably time to that. The infamous Chris Pratt playing a Mario Brother movie. Yes. I So far, I don't know if there's any brand immersion, um, but it will be interesting, and especially in Universal Studios Hollywood, because that land is directly across from their newly rethemed Jurassic World attraction. <laughs> so it truly is like the lower lot w- might be Chris Pratt land. Uh, on behalf of all Italian Americans, I am officially objecting to Chris Pratt playing a Mario <laughs> brother. Um, all right, but let's let's go briefly to the Six Flags arena. You do oh, not boy. cover Six Flags parks, and if not, why? I do not cover Six Flags parks um, on a very <laughs> on a very literal sense. No editor wants a story about Six Flags. It's just <laughs> why is that? There's no there's no robust fandom there. No one's like, ooh, you know what I want? A Harley Quinn coaster that just came off the line. Like, nobody is dying for well, that. You clearly are not appealing to 15-year-old kids who want to impress their girlfriends. <laughs> I mean, that uh, go to Universal. It's much more fun. Um, I <laughs> Listen, I have a friend who comes to L.A. once or twice uh, every year or two, and he will. He and I will go to Six Flags and ride every single roller coaster in a couple hours and be done with it and be very happy. 
Yes, but I would argue that writing everything good in a few hours is a failure on the park because that means they don't have enough to keep you all day. Well, they got like six or seven roller coasters that literally scare the shit out of you. So that's pretty good. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if they scare you because they're old and, and rickety or not, but I do think that theme parks have really boosted uh, their coasters lately. I mean, we have we have great ones almost everywhere, especially brand new ones in Orlando at Universal and Disney. So like those are coasters that I'm going to and getting my thrills at. But Six Flags just isn't, the theming isn't there. There's not enough that's compelling enough to have like a, I don't, not, there's no nostalgic connection really in terms of a fan community. I don't think people openly love it because there aren't any characters that they can see in those parks and films. And like, I'm not going to talk about not Batman. Don't even get me started. Um, like there's not the same connection to those parks that people have emotionally to Universal and Disney. And I, I just don't, I don't love it there. I think I can get plenty of thrills at Universal and Disney, even though people don't always think that they have coasters. All right. Carly Weissel, thank you for coming on. Appreciate the time. Uh, everyone listen to her podcast, very amusing, and look for her in uh, various outlets. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, we are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Producer Craig, are you excited for Elvis, the movie? Uh, you know, I, I, I'll see it if I get a ton of positive word of mouth reviews from my friends. But other than that, I probably won't see it. The word of mouth so far is not great. The reviews out of Cannes were kind of lukewarm. It's kind of a Baz Luhrmann like explosion of edits and quick cuts and flash without that much beyond that were the reviews. But uh, it's also two hours and 40 minutes. That's the kicker right there. Yeah, yeah. that is just a lot of time with Elvis. Um, but it's coming out this weekend. It's getting a huge, wide release, big promo push from Warner Brothers. Interestingly, I think it's because we're taping this pod a day early, earlier. We don't have official tracking numbers, the final tracking for the movie. Um, but whatever it is, I'm going to take the under because... <laughs> just a general under, whatever it is, broad under. I have, I have a sell on Elvis. Uh, I just don't think... The audience is there. It's one of those movies where you have to, you know, I hate to use the Tom Cruise quote, but you have to hit a bullet with a bullet. Like this movie to succeed has to be the absolute perfect execution of the best possible version of an Elvis movie. And it doesn't seem like that is this. I don't know who the movie's for. Do you think this movie will catapult Austin Butler's career into a real movie star? (laughs) I can tell that the irony in your voice suggests you do not believe that to be the case. Um, no, I don't. I mean, what does a movie star even mean these days? Like, I, I don't. I'm not quite sure what that means. But is this going to all of a sudden turn Austin Butler into someone who can open a movie? Absolutely not. Do you think anyone will get an Oscar nomination for this film? Uh, I mean, people say Tom Hanks is good in it. And, you know, he does the whole fat suit transformation thing. Um, You know, maybe we haven't seen. It's very tough to say who's getting an Oscar nomination in June. But even in the lukewarm reviews of the movie, people do say that Austin Butler is very good. I don't think that anyone is going to remember this movie come end of the year um, unless it is a huge surprise hit, in which case they will. But um, and that would obviously make a big difference for Austin Butler because the last guy to really come out of a movie and become what Hollywood thinks is a movie star is probably Timothy Chalamet. And he got that bump off of Call Me By Your Name, which was what, seven years ago now? 
Yeah, I think I just looked it up. It's 2017. So five, six years ago that came out. Yeah, and, and he was like 20 when he filmed that. So, you know- And Austin Butler is what, 30 now? He, he's 30. And, you know, we've talked about, maybe this is a separate episode, but if Miles, if this Top Gun movie came out t- 20, 30 years ago, Miles Teller would become like a Harrison Ford. But now it doesn't even really matter. He's going to continue just probably being the guy he was. And that might be the case with Austin Butler. It's almost impossible now to, to create a mega movie star from like a 25, 30 year old actor based on one movie. It just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, even a movie like Top Gun, which is such a breakout hit that is overperforming you're right if if this were a previous generation not just miles teller it'd be glenn powell it'd be jay ellis i mean all of those young people in the in the in the fighter pilot class would be breakout stars we'll see what each of them does i know hollywood has been trying to make glenn powell happen for a while um and it hasn't quite happened but look at what miles teller did i mean it's, it's sort of unfortunate but he has this huge hit in top gun and because of the pandemic it is coming out you know, a few weeks before a throwaway Netflix movie with Chris Hemsworth, Spiderhead, that just came and went and was not very well reviewed. And then he's got a TV show in the offer, which also is is out right now. So, you know, the whole aura around Miles Teller is kind of diminished by these other things that he's in. And we'll be able, it'll be interesting to see what CAA can do with him now, because what do you do? How do you capitalize on this? Other than getting him into the inevitable Top Gun Maverick sequel, what do you do with him? Is he now a movie star? I wonder if this is all cyclical, you know? Boy bands came back, right? People love to fanboy over celebrities. I wonder if we will enter a new era eventually where Tom Cruise's do return and and these megastars come back. No. You don't think so? The culture's too fractured now. I mean, if you look at the, the culture that gave us Tom Cruise, it was a big deal to be able to see Tom Cruise in a movie and you saw it every couple of years. You didn't see him anywhere else other than that. Maybe some paparazzi photos. But nowadays, I mean, I get most of my Miles Teller content from his wife's Instagram, which is a delightful follow if you do not follow Keely Teller. She <laughs> posts stuff all the time about their various, you know, travels around the world, hanging out with Aaron Rodgers and Shailene Woodley. Like, that's where you see Miles Teller most of the time, and you don't need to wait for the movies. It's, the whole ecosystem is completely different. I don't think we're ever going to be in this in in the culture position that will give us someone like Tom Cruise. I think it's possible. I'm holding out hope. Comedy's coming back, and Tom Cruise's are coming back. All right. Well, you you are the young generation, so if you want to make it happen, you can. <laughs> um, all right. That is the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Carly Weissel. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, and I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.